Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For Tech Stuff listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology by Ray Kurzweil. Kurzweil explores a future where man and machine are one and the same. Tech Stuff is fascinated by the idea of singularity, and this is a great book to learn more about it. The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology by Ray Kurzweil. Available from Audible. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, using a pretty typical-looking corporate laptop, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. It was a wrong number that started it, the telephone ringing three times in the dead of night and the voice on the other end asking for someone he was not. All right, then. Yeah, so today we're going to talk... Thank you. Yes. Well, I don't know why I'm thanking you. It's a quote that I did not write, so uh, (laughs) I just just quoted. Um, We are today talking about ultrabooks, and what the heck are they, and do you want one? Um, I figured it was a... a, uh a computer that wore a silver suit with a flashing light on its chest that took on big rubbery monsters. No, no. Uh, sadly, not. Uh, I'm still waiting for the Gigantor computer that uh, can only be controlled by a little child. But uh, they, no, the, the Ultrabook is a new class of notebook-style computers. Why? Marketing. Yeah. But No, it really is. It just really like, is. Just like how netbooks were... Marketing. That was a thing, right? Yes. And in a way, you could say that the Ultrabook is sort of a reaction to two things. One mm-hmm. is the netbook movement, which kind of got took a hit when tablets started to get popular. Because people were saying, well, I could get a tablet device, which is a really cool form factor and uh, has a fun touchscreen interface. Or for around the same price, I could get a netbook, which is essentially an underpowered computer. Right. Right. Uh, and and there were a lot of people who said, well, if between those two choices, I will go with the tablet. So the netbook sales, netbooks were a big thing just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, netbook sales started to take a little bit of a of a dip, and so computer manufacturers started to look around and say, well, what can we do about this? Do we keep pushing netbooks, or do we get into a different market? The other thing that really, really I think launched the ultrabook movement was Apple. Mm-hmm. With the MacBook Air. Yes. Now the MacBook Air is a super slim MacBook. Yes. Right, and it's it it gets that slim form factor through um, lots of different ways. One thing is you, you know you remove the optical drive. Yes. So there's 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 no uh, DVD drive in it. At all. Yeah. Yeah. So once you remove the optical drive, you now conserve a lot of space and mm-hmm. you use a solid state uh, hard drive so you don't have to have platters in there or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the MacBook Air is this really thin, beautiful computer. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it's aesthetically, it's very pleasing. Right. Uh, and it's also a fairly powerful computer, you know, for its for its form factor. Uh, 
And so uh, also it's a premium computer. Mm-hmm. It's you know you're paying a premium price partly because it's Apple and partly because of the design of the computer itself. So um yeah the the uh the MacBook Air um sort of got a lot of attention just because of the the way it looks and because it has that solid state drive which uh you know they're they're naturally more expensive than yes. the, the platter hard drives. Now um if you look at the specs uh simply looking at a a an, you know Apple computers if you put a MacBook versus a MacBook Air you'll notice that the the processor is a li- generally a little slower, yep. and the drive is smaller because it's a, a um, solid-state hard drive, mm-hmm. and it's you know sort of more expensive for what you're getting. Uh, it may be less expensive than the MacBook, but then you go, well, but you know, for a couple hundred dollars, so uh, you have to decide what you want. But for for some people, for a set of people who wanted um, an Apple laptop, they said, you know what, I really like the fact that it's lighter, it's smaller. Um, and, and, you know, look how sleek it is. I remember Steve Jobs unveiling the thing and he pulled it out of a manila envelope. Yeah. Um, which, which got a pretty big reaction. I mean, you know, yeah. before that, you just didn't see computers at that, that were thin enough to be able to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, other manufacturers started making thinner laptops. I remember, uh, Sony came out with a couple of, of the, uh, Vio laptops that yeah. were really slender. Um, Samsung came out with its uh, Series 9 in particular, mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. a very thin one. And that's one of the, the lines that we'll probably talk about in this podcast. But the idea of the Ultrabook really, really comes from Intel. It, and it's funny because Intel has actually set forth some standards. They um, In 2011, they announced standards for what would become the Ultrabook. And they, yes. they actually named it the Ultrabook. And they said, if you're going to make... An ultra book, whatever that is, right. this is what it means. This, yeah, you have to meet these bare minimum standards. Like, for example, it can be no thicker than 21 millimeters, which is 0.83 inches thick. If it's thicker than that, then technically it should not be called an ultra book. Neener, neener. Uh, it also should have a very fast startup uh, and should, in fact, go from sleep mode to full interaction <laughs> You know, within seven seconds. Seven seconds is the maximum amount of time it should take to go from sleep mode to ready to go, uh, which is that's that's pretty fast. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you've ever had like an older computer, an older notebook computer and had it go into sleep mode and then try to wake it up. Sometimes you're, you know, you, you, you start the wake up process and then you think, all right, going to go make some coffee. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe make a couple phone calls before I get back. You know, part of that, I think, is the uh, information being fragmented on the hard drive and all the stuff that you install on the computer and you have it running. And, you know, it's it's not like it's brand new. I think that's what they're saying the seven seconds is, you know, when you get it from the manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, other things that mileage it, may vary. it needs to do, it needs to have at least between uh, five and eight hours of battery life. Um, it needs uh, to have uh, features in it that protect consumers against theft. So a lot of these devices have uh, have have software and hardware in it that can help consumers track down where the computer is should it ever be stolen. Um, it's very useful. Yes. And then ultimately, well, it's Intel. So an Ultrabook has to have an Intel Core processor. Uh, if it doesn't have an Intel Core processor, technically it is not an Ultrabook, at least according to Intel. Now, Ultrabook, I think, will end up becoming shorthand for very sleek, fast computers. 
I don't know that they will necessarily remain the domain of Intel. I mean, even if Intel trademarks it, I imagine that that term is going to be used pretty loosely. Mm-hmm. I've heard people talk about the MacBook Air as an ultrabook, although by definition, it's not. Right. Um, yeah, so they also usually have a solid-state drive because that does conserve space, uh, physical space, not not digital space, but physical space. And um, they often won't have things like optical drives. You'll have to use digital downloads to get access to to software. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the price point, under $1,000. Well... Supposed to be. Yeah, you... A lot of the, the Ultrabooks that I saw... Uh, I, I recently went to, if you've listened to our episode about my Consumer Electronics Show visit, CES visit of 2012, um, you probably heard about me talk about some of these these uh, Ultrabooks. We'll find out because we haven't actually recorded it yet, but it's going to publish before this one. I made a note. It's like a time travel thing. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, there's several computers that were falling under the Ultrabook name that topped a thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's, an, it's sort of a lo- this is looser than the other definitions, right? Like like the Samsung Series Nine computer that I mentioned. Uh, not that's technically an Ultrabook. If you if you want to go with the price, then it's not. It's because it's thirteen ninety nine, uh, but it's point six four inches thick, which means it's 1.6 centimeters. It, it meets the uh, the minimum requirement for thickness. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous design, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very pretty. I, I liked it a lot. But uh, yeah, it's that's one that was often being uh, lumped in with the other Ultrabooks. Other ones included the HP Envy 14 Spectre. Yes. Which, that, was, that, was, on, that was on the thick side. For Ultrabooks. It was still a very thin computer, but it was thicker than most of the other Ultrabooks that were on display. The interesting thing to me about the HP Envy was that it has um, Gorilla Glass on the the computer itself. So mm-hmm. the back of the computer is coated in Gorilla Glass, and the, uh, the base of the keyboard, where the touchpad is, that whole section is coated in Gorilla Glass, which helps it protect it from scratches, things like that. Uh, also has uh, near-field communication technology built into it. Oh, okay. So, you know, if you want to go and, uh, say, uh, buy a, a drink from a soda machine, you can hold up your laptop and pay for it with that. Tom Merritt of Tech News Today made the same point, and I think that that misses the applications you can put, you can use NFC for. Okay, let's, let's take the opportunity to, to clear that up, because I, I, I can understand that being the first reaction, saying, why would you put NFC in a laptop? If NFC is what you're using to use your cell phone to purchase stuff at a uh, vendor, why would you put it in a laptop? Okay, NFC is a communications protocol. Right. Like so it's Bluetooth? So you don't – it's not necessarily payment. Let's say that you pull up some information on your laptop computer and you want to transfer it to your phone. NFC might enable that to happen. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, uh, let's say that you're typing in a map thing on your computer and then you think, oh, I should put that in my phone so that way I can navigate to wherever it is I'm going. NFC could allow you to transfer that very seamlessly, right? You wouldn't have to go into your phone and also pull it up. It would just come up on your phone. Or let's even say that you are shopping, but you're shopping online. Mm -hmm. And you already have all your credit card information programmed into your smartphone Mm -hmm. with whatever service you're using, like Google Wallet, let's say. And then you have an NFC chip in your laptop, and you just wave your smartphone to your laptop. The transaction goes through. You don't have to type in your credit card number or anything like that, and it's all taken care of for you. That Those are 
applications for NFC technology. It's not just waving your laptop at a cashier. Although I guess you could do that. These are thin enough. By the way, uh, weight is not a requirement for these things. Oh, so they can weigh nothing. Or they can weigh everything. Oh, okay. I just blew your mind. But no, I actually talked with an Intel, uh, not executive, an Intel representative, and mentioned, I said, oh, so is there a weight limit to these two? Like, does it have to be under five pounds, for example? And she said, no. So you can make one out of uranium and it'd be nice and heavy. Also, radioactive. Don't recommend it. But at any rate, weight is not uh, not a factor when it comes to what determines an ultrabook. Now available, the HP Isotope. Yes. Uh, and and at CES, Intel mentioned that there was, I think, 65 ultrabooks in development with possibly yeah 65 different ultrabooks from various manufacturers you know mm-hmm. including intel had one that was a little weird the nikishi did you read about the nikishi Gesundheit. no that doesn't answer my question oh no no okay so this was a, a particularly interesting design and i use interesting in the most vague way possible <laughs> um that, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this. It's kind of a neat idea, but kind of weird too. The so if you look at your your typical notebook computer, mm-hmm. at the base of the keyboard, the bottom section of the keyboard, it's where your trackpad is, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, place where you usually rest your your wrists or whatever while you're typing on the keyboard. Well, in the Nikishi, there's a section just below that that's completely clear. So you know, it's this it's like a clear window mm-hmm. at the base of the keyboard. So, you know, it's like you could see the desk beneath your computer. Well, why would you do that? That's because when you fold the computer down, there, within that clear window, there is an interface you can use even when the computer itself is in sleep mode. Hmm. There's a, uh, and it's like a Windows 8 style, that's the Metro operating system. Right. So you've got this little touch-based operating system that you can use to do things like check an email uh, message or other small apps while the computer itself is still closed. So it sort of puts in a little bit of tablet functionality into a notebook form factor without it actually being a hybrid. Interesting. Yeah, and it was a completely it was a, a concept model. It's just a prototype. It's not something that's necessarily ever going to go to the market. In fact, I would be shocked to see it go to the market. It was interesting but but odd. Like I, I personally, I was thinking, well, that's kind of a a, a a weird take. But then, really, what it shows is the potential mm-hmm. for an ultrabook. Mm-hmm. And another one that did the potential for an ultrabook was the Lenovo Yoga. Did you yes. see this? That, that actually, I was about to ask you yeah. about that. Did you actually get your hands on one of these? I didn't get my hands on one, but I did see it in person. Yeah. Now this is this is an ultrabook that uh, I guess it's called the Yoga because the the uh, it can flip. In a, in a way that actually turns it into a tablet. It's bendy, 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 bendy. Yeah, and you, you know how uh, that's a that's a marketing term. You you can bend the screen back, and once the screen hits about 180 degrees, the keyboard shuts off. So you don't have to worry about accidentally typing something on the keyboard while you're converting it into its other form factor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you 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 fold the screen back, and you can fold it so that it 
is a stand. So in other words, it's, it makes a triangle with whatever surface you've put it on, mm-hmm. and it becomes like a touchscreen interface. Like isosceles. Uh, uh, or you can fold it all the way back, and it becomes a tablet, and mm-hmm. then you can use it you know, as a tablet. So um, the screen would be on the outside of one side and then keyboards, the keyboards on, the on the outside. Other side. Yeah, but again, the keyboard shuts down after you hit 180 degrees. So even though you've got a keyboard on the back of this tablet, it's not like you're going to be you know, accidentally typing in gibberish while you're trying to navigate Angry Birds. However, I would uh, suggest not putting it down on the, the uh, cafe table and then spilling your coffee on the table because then it would get in the keyboard. I'd never recommend spilling your coffee on the cafe table, whether you've got technology on it or not. Well, that's true because then you can't drink it. Yeah. I mean, well, I have been known to – never mind. That's wow. There's certain okay. coffee shops in Atlanta I am no longer allowed into. Let's just say that. Right. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Sometimes you got to have that cup of coffee. <laughs> so, yeah, there's – but there, there are literally dozens of different ultrabooks that are in development. I mean, like yeah. I said, 65 in, in 2012 alone. I think 65 to 70. And um, what they show that uh, different manufacturers have a different take on the concept. Right. I mean, there's some I saw that w- are going to be priced as low as around eight hundred, eight hundred fifty dollars, uh, which is you know that's pretty competitive for something that's on the cutting edge of form factors, if not uh, the actual guts of the device itself. Um, again, you know, it's going to have to have an Intel Core processor for it to be called an Ultrabook. So there's a certain level of speed that you're going to expect from any Ultrabook. But some of them, are, of course, are going to have like the most advanced chipset that that you can possibly get in that form factor. Mm-hmm. Like again, like the Samsung Series Nine, that's a good example because there are three different series that kind of fit in the Ultrabook uh, category from Samsung: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Series Five, Series Seven, Series Nine. The higher you get, the more luxurious the device. Right, right. So the 9 is a sleeker design, has more powerful components, and a higher price point than the 5s. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand there's a new chipset coming from Intel, uh, codenamed Haswell. Yes. Uh, the So we had Sandy Bridge, mm-hmm. right? So Sandy Bridge was the big development last year, and then we have Ivy Bridge that's just coming out now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that's going to be in, in 2012, at least in the first half, probably the first, probably the first three quarters, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to have lots of devices running on Ivy Bridge processors. Uh, but the one after that is, as you said, so we're going to, uh, that'll be the next big development. And again, this is, Showing improvements in speed and and size. Yeah, yeah. Well, they call it a system on a chip too, which would work better in this kind of form factor. I, w- I would imagine because you've got all the components there, uh, where you don't have to include separate uh, other pieces to the uh, the operating puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would assume that that would take up a lot less space. Now, I don't know if you would sacrifice performance, um, you know, as a result of that. Right. But uh, it's still. Um, you know, still on the ways, uh, you know, coming. But that's the way the tablets handle it too, um, like the iPad and, and the uh, Android tablets. Mm-hmm. So, but all of these these Intel machines now, do they necessarily have to use Windows? Because I didn't see anything that said specifically. Now, all of these machines we've been talking about use Windows, specifically Windows eight too, because that that allows them to uh, use that tablet functionality. But I've been wondering if. Uh, there's a possibility that you could run something like Android on an Ultrabook. There's nothing in Intel's 
lineup of requirements that says that it has to use a particular operating system mm-hmm. versus another. Interesting. Uh, but uh, I think the trend is to go to Windows mainly. I think I think mostly it's an image thing. The idea being sure. that these are these devices are devices designed to compete with the MacBook Air, mm-hmm. and there's a perception within the general consumer market that Windows and Apple are the two operating systems. Yeah, you know, and we all know there are other operating systems besides Windows and and Mac OS. Yes, but the general to the general consumer, that's what an operating system is. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if you're trying to create a luxury product and you want to make as many sales as possible, you're going to go with a an operating system that most people are familiar with. Um, maybe some of these will have options where you can choose to get a model that runs, uh, say, a Linux-based operating system as opposed to Microsoft. But mm-hmm. but I, I that'll be the exception to the rule. They tried that with netbooks. Yeah. Right. That was one of the things about netbooks was that you actually had the option with some of the providers, some of the manufacturers, to get a model that ran Linux operating system as opposed to Windows, and uh, it got kind of a negative reaction amongst the general consumer market. I mean, at first you had a lot of people adopting it because they were cheaper, mm-hmm. so you didn't have to pay the licensing fee to Microsoft for the operating system, and that reduced the cost of the device overall. So then you're like. Well, there's two different versions of this one netbook I like. One of them is $150 cheaper than the other, so clearly I'm going to go with that one. Mm -hmm. Then you get it home and you realize, I don't know what this operating system is. I'm not familiar with it. I don't even know if all of my software is going to run on it. I'm going to have to learn this new thing. I'm irritated. I'm returning this thing. Mm -hmm. And so you had a lot of stories about the return rate on netbooks because people were unhappy with either the performance of the machine or, more specifically, the operating system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that would probably mean that we're going to see fewer instances of that with Ultrabooks. Not necessarily uh, a complete absence, but I think that the majority of them are going to be Windows-based machines, Yeah, especially yeah. with the push for Windows 8 in, in 2012. Uh, the combination of the new machines coming out and the new operating system coming out, I think, is going to be... You know that's going to be the focus for 2012. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now that being said, would I buy an Ultrabook? Uh, I'll tell you this: I tried to win one. <laughs> I was at the Intel booth, tried to win one on two different occasions. Uh, to be fair, at the time my work computer had gone kaput. Yes. And so I was thinking this will be a way where I can write stuff because I can get another computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that did not work out for me. It turns out my dance moves—they aren't as. Uh, fly as I had anticipated. What? You just used fly. Yes, and, uh, well, I, I'm i not as fly as I had hoped. All right, then. So, yeah, um, turns out if you do have the opportunity to win an Ultrabook from Intel, doing the robot, not necessarily going to win you anything. Right, right. Okay. Um, yeah, I should have popped and locked. Well, it, it'll be interesting, I think, to see how far this goes. The, the, the concept... Of the concept behind it, I think is sound. I think people want a lighter, thinner machine. Yeah. Uh, just because it's lighter and thinner. Um, well, and but the idea behind Ultrabook as a, a name, I don't know if that will have the lasting power. But I think they also want, if they want something that's going to be in a computer form factor, they want something that's going to be more powerful than a tablet. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a netbook versus a tablet, and you think that their performance is about the same, 
again, I think most people sort of lean toward the tablet mode just because it's kind of a cooler form factor. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go with the Ultrabook, then one of the marketing things you can say is that, hey, this device is far faster and has far more memory and et cetera, et cetera, than the tablets do. Therefore, uh, if you're in the market for a computer, this is the way you should go. Yeah. It's ultra portable and ultra powerful, I guess, is what you could say. And ultra booky. And ultra booky. Ultra bookish. So, um, but uh, this, I also think, is uh, an indication that people are more comfortable using the cloud for uh, yeah. for storage and for other applications because, um, you know, without a, a, an optical drive, uh, as most of these machines are, you know, that's uh, – it gives you fewer options for installing new software. Yeah. But I think people are becoming more comfortable uh, purchasing and downloading software from the Internet and, now. And we're seeing more app stores. Intel has its own app store. Mm-hmm. So just as Apple has the Mac app store mm-hmm. for, for Mac computers, uh, Intel's got its own app store up now, which uh, allows you to to shop for various kinds of apps and software mm-hmm. directly from Intel and buy them that way uh, and then download it and then you've got it on your machine. Yeah, the, the real interesting thing to me is that the the evolution of the personal computer as seen it at shows like CES mm-hmm. – Suggests that if you don't have a broadband connection, you're getting left out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back in you know five years ago, you didn't have to have a broadband connection to have a good computer and a a good suite of software because mm-hmm. you could go out and buy a hard copy of whatever piece of software you wanted. You get it on disk, you load it into your computer, and you're good to go. But now that we're getting to a point where the the optical drive is starting to disappear, if you don't have that broadband connection, then you, you're cut off from the content. You're cut off from the software. Mm-hmm. So in a way, and uh, it's kind of silly to say this, but in a way, CES really paints a picture of widening the digital divide. Yeah. Because you're talking about a class of customers who have to have a bare minimum access of technology in order to take advantage of the products you're launching. Yeah. And if yeah. you don't have that, then you're stuck. Now, you know, five years ago, that was electricity. <laughs> yeah. Now it's broadband. And I think it's pretty safe to say that electricity penetration is greater than broadband penetration. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, of course, there's still there's still companies out there that are marketing devices that are meant for – Consumers who don't have broadband access, mm-hmm. but that's you know it's almost that's a specialty product now. That's yeah. not like the general product that hits the store shelves. So that's kind of an interesting trend as well. Um, we'll have to see how this plays out. I imagine that Ultrabooks will do fairly well um, because it, it's competing in a different space than than netbooks were. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, some people would argue that Ultrabooks really should just be called notebooks. Yeah. They're just they're just particularly sleek notebooks, um, and also I guess we should mention we we talked about the the thickness and everything. Typically, these ultrabooks have a screen size between thirteen and fourteen inches. Mm-hmm. That's that's your typical ultrabook. Uh, there are outliers, but that's you know, they're larger than your netbooks are, and that was another point was that people were saying. Uh, ultrabooks are going to be preferable to netbooks because you won't have the same cramped keyboards that you had in the netbook form factor. And sh- the, there were several netbooks that came out that definitely had small keyboards that were a little uncomfortable to type on if you had, you know, man hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> man hands. 
or, you know, if you were larger than a child. <laughs> well, I, I just get the sense that people are – that the average person is not going to see Ultrabooks as a, a thing. Uh, I think this is more as a – you know, from the manufacturers. But I don't, I don't think the general public is going to think of Ultrabooks necessarily as a, a separate thing. Um, that well, said, I think it will have another effect too is, you know, pushing the uh, plain old laptop – uh, toward the the lower end of the scale in in terms of price, yeah. Um, well, because yeah. now that they could they could charge more for an ultrabook because it's it's sleek and efficient and 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 cool looking, um, and oh well, you can have this uh, uh, brick top um, for uh, for four hundred dollars, or yeah. you can buy an ultrabook for nine ninety nine. Well, yeah, I think ultrabooks will. It'll all depend on the marketing. And I, I, you know, if, if these companies all come out and start using Ultrabook as a marketing term, mm-hmm. then maybe the general consumer will have, like, they'll think of Ultrabooks as being its own specific category. Right. Um, frankly, I haven't seen any of the advertising materials, but, you know, just based upon the press releases I saw at CES, uh, the term was prevalent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was one of the big themes of CES this year. Yeah. But I think I think this uh, this move is really showing that they the manufacturers have moved on from the concept of netbooks. Definitely. Um, and that uh, you know between tablets and ultrabooks, there's there's really no uh, not much of a market say I wouldn't say no n- not much of a market segment for the netbook anymore. Right. Well, yeah, and I think um, I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, that's that's what we have so far. Whether or not this will become a successful category in consumer electronics remains to be seen. Uh, it's, if it fails, it's certainly not because it lacked support on the manufacturer side. No, no. Yeah, because there's a lot of enthusiasm, let me tell you. And uh, and what, if you haven't seen these devices, you really need to get a chance to take a look at them, either online or if you can go to a store just to get a look at the form factors. Because even if you're not in the market for a new computer, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting to see the the move to this this design where everything is is whopper thin. Okay. All right. So All right. that wraps up our discussion on Ultra Books. If you guys have any topics you would like us to cover, you can let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW or write to us at our brand new email address, TechStuff at Discovery.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?